Welcome to C Suite Radio. Idly hey! Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Prepare to be astonished with Brett Allen. Dude, we are so gonna party! A pop culture podcast. <gasps> oh! At the Open Mic, no topic is off limits. Great Odin's Raven! Join in weekly as Brett interviews your favorite celebrities from film, television, sports, music, and much more. Plus, you never know who will stop by. The Mystic Portal awaits. Now, here is your host, Brett Allen. What's up, everybody? Happy Monday to you. Well, we have a fun and exciting episode lined up today. We actually teased this on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, all of the social media sites. Stephen Tobolowski is on the show, and everybody really knows him as Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day, but this man is a hyphenate. He has had so many fantastic roles, comedic, dramatic. I mean, the list goes on and on, and we cover all of that. He shares some pretty amazing stories. This guy has been around for a very long time. He's the absolute best, and we had such a fun conversation on a fun day, a rainy afternoon afternoon on a Friday and he he just made my day. Sometimes you talk to people and you just feel and you walk away a better human being and that was the case with Stephen. Stephen, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here today. Thank you very much, Brett. It's lovely to be asked. This is this is a very nice way to spend the Friday. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's raining here in the Bay Area, so we didn't have rain. It was hot, and now it's raining again. So I'm hoping that we don't lose power or anything <laughs> crazy uh, happens uh, during our Ahuli experience. As a little reference there to your uh, <laughs> repertoire of work, and uh, we should be fine. I'm excited. Uh, we were talking, folks, before we started rolling tape. He and I can obviously see each other, but he has a massive book collection behind him. How many books? Did you say that you have in total in your collection? Right now, we, we have 4,000 books. And the way I know we have 4,000 books is that my wife is very meticulous. And so after having all these books, we had to have bookcases built in our house because, you know, I, I watch sometimes those home improvement shows. Yes. I, I watch all those home improvement shows. And they, they had one where uh, they were out in Malibu, and it was a home that was like $135 million wow. overlooking the ocean. And all of this square footage, and they're showing the, the house, and you know what they didn't have? Bookshelves. One bookshelf, really? not one. So we, we had to have bookshelves <laughs> built here, my wife being very meticulous. After several years, she said, I'm getting a library program, and I'm going to catalog every damn book book. So it took her two years to do it. And she could tell you exactly the number, but I know it's over 4,000 and under 5,000. And she made a declaration at the end of the two years that from now on, no book can enter our home (laughs) unless a book leaves. That's it. Really? So you can't, if you're out and about cruising through West Hollywood and you see this tiny little bookstore you have to trade one for one, right? There's no. I, I, yeah, no. Yeah, I, if if I buy if I buy a book of the Castles of Ireland, at a little bookstore on West Hollywood, I have to come home and find the book on the Castles of Scotland and throw it away. Well, and you have to go use her library program as well to. It's like so. We're not working on the Dewey Decimal System here, right? This is pretty no. advanced. It's 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 based on the AND system of cognitive 
association. So you have the drama section. Part of the drama section is behind me where you're sitting now, but this is the collection, the drama collection. But if you go for individual drama plays, you have to go into another room. You have to go down to shelves underneath the dining room table. And there, if you open those drawers, are, are shelves and shelves of individual plays. Wow, that is very fascinating. That's not something that I would have ever known about you in researching you or just that no. it's that's not something that somebody has put up on jokingly Wikipedia. I was talking to somebody <laughs> and uh, they were talking about a another another celebrity about an interesting interview experience. And it seemed like in the middle of the conversation, the the actress like, I feel like a lot of this information comes from wikipedia that people get because anybody can literally go in and just add things and make things up so that's a fun fact i didn't know that's so interesting and, and i imagine you've been collecting for a long time you mentioned plays do you have a lot of plays that you collect a lot and read? of plays well just plays that my wife and i've been in she's an actress too so we have a lot of plays a lot of plays from college a lot of plays from our amateur life uh doing plays in Dallas and her doing plays in Georgia uh, and uh, plays from friends that f- friends have written us. And, and, and so wow. we have all of those, but once you do a play, for example, I did the play jumpers, Tom Stoppard's jumpers in jumpers in uh, graduate school. The odds are I'm not going to do jumpers again. <laughs> No Broadway right? revivals in the future of that. Yeah, maybe. So I, when I was <laughs> when I was in uh, graduate school, I was twenty five years old, something like that, and I played an eighty six year old man. So wow. they spray painted my hair because I had a lot of hair then, gray, to play this old uh, physicist. Well, now, you know, I'm getting closer and closer to that magic eighty six year, <laughs> <laughs> and. Art imitating life now. And I'm not going to play in Tom Stoppard's Jumpards anytime soon. So why have that book in easy access? You might as well put it in a place where you have to get on your hands and knees and crawl to get it. Yeah, because you're not going to, you're not going to, and you don't want to throw it away because part of your life is tied up with that play. Sure. And I have three copies of The Star Thrower. Really? By, by Lauren Isley. Three copies of The Star Thrower by Lauren Isley, and people don't know who Lauren Isley is. Lauren Isley is one of those rare combinations of poet-scientist, and he writes scientific articles with a poetic metaphor to them that, that are mind-blowing, and I got one copy as a birthday gift. I got another copy that I bought for George Lucas. That I and I actually delivered to George uh, on his fiftieth birthday. Gave it to him and said, "I thought maybe you would find a movie in here, to that you would find a subject of a movie." Sure. And he he wrote back and said, "Thank you." And there's two more right here on my shelf. <laughs> two more. So I bought four copies of that book, three of which I still have here, and and these two are for people who. Uh, when I would teach class, I would okay. indicate unusual books that maybe they don't have that they should look at. Wow, that is so fascinating to think about that and how fun for you to give a book to George Lucas. And who knows, maybe one day 
uh, we'll see something on the big screen uh, <laughs> in regards to that book. Who knows? I mean, it's just this world that we live in is so interesting. I don't think things happen by mistake or accident. I think everything happens for a reason. And um, that's one of the well, things I like, you know. To I mean, the reason I gave George the book for his 50th birthday is we had just done Radio Land Murders. And George was the producer of that and wrote it. And he came in, Mel Smith was directing it. And the last two or three days, they wanted to redo many, 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 many scenes. Got and it. I had to go back to Los Angeles to do another job. And so George Lucas, uh, Vic Armstrong, who was the stunt coordinator of Indiana Jones, and Mel Smith divided up all of the scenes that had to be reshot because they had to reshoot 80 pages in two days. Wow. And I got George Lucas. So I had to get on a plane going back to Los Angeles and I'm all dressed to go. They said, and George is going like, we'll get this done. We'll get this done. Not, not a problem. So we start shooting the scene. I'm looking at my watch. It's two hours before the plane leaves. I have to get back to start a pilot in Los Angeles and we're shooting in South Carolina. Oh, you know, boy. so I have to get on this damn at the Coralco <laughs> studios. I have to get on that plane. So, I do the scene, we get it all done, and I'm running to the car to take me to the airport, and the AD comes up to me and says, I'm sorry, Stephen, can you come back? We have to reshoot the scene because George put his thumb on the oh, camera no. lid. And so I come back, and I go, you did what? George, big shot, Lucas, sticks his stupid thumb on the on the lens of the camera, don't you idiot? How can you? I don't have time for this, George. I have to get back to Los Angeles. I have another job. How dare you? You call you, you and your Star Wars. You know, go, you know. So I'm going off on George Lucas. So we reshoot the scene. I get. I don't have time to change clothes. So I'm going back to Los Angeles wearing clothes from the 1930s. And, and my and my 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 little 1930 suit. And somewhere on the plane over the United States. This thought came into my head when the adrenaline settled down was, oh, my God, <laughs> what did you just do? You just ended your career. This is this is horrible. So I got back to Los Angeles. I did the read through of the pilot. And then I called up George Lucas. And I oh, said, boy. George, I said, George, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. I was so tense and everything. I, that was completely out of line. I'm an imbecile. And he starts laughing on the other end of the phone. He said, Stephen, that, that was the best part of the whole thing. He said, I loved it. So, oh, uh, wow. What a story. That's so he, he invited me to his 50th birthday. So I wanted to give him a present that meant a lot to me. And I gave him the star thrower. That's a fun story. Wow. First of all, to have the tenacity to, you know, to, to, to go after him like that, I think is brilliant. And for him to respond in the way that he, he did is just uh, even better because even better. That just makes it so exciting just to hear those kinds of stories. And, and, and it excites me even more about this and just talking to people because we're all human beings. I know this is kind of an odd way to shift gears a little bit or to start the interview but I do this a lot with celebrities that I talk to I, I 
practice their first and last names to get them right when I'm doing post-production. And I'm fascinated with your last name because uh, Tobolowski, I, I research it. There's not a lot out there. I've read different articles and press that you've done about it, but can you kind of fill our listeners in a little bit about the last name and the origins of it? Because obviously it's, we know it, we see you and we know, oh, this is Stephen. But I'm kind of curious about how the name came about and sort of where it origins from. If you yes. Uh, and Brett, I'm going to give you a, a bit of news that I did not know before that will be something that will set the record straight. Yes. No one has heard this story, I don't think. So the story people have heard is this. My whole life, people in my family pronounced the name differently, Tobolowski, 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 in different ways. So I went to my uncle Nathan, who was the family historian at the time. I was in my mid-50s, right, mid-50s. And I said, Nathan, how do we pronounce our name? Uh, I don't know. And uncle Nathan said, well, Stephen, you can pronounce it any way you want because it's not really your name. Oh, wow. And I said, What? He said, yeah, when grandfather came to the United States, his place of debarkation, you know, when he came into the United States was not Ellis Island, but was Galveston, Texas. That's where his boat came from the old country in 1888, something like that. And grandfather did not speak English. And uh, the gatekeeper did not understand what grandfather was saying in his Yiddishkeit or Polish, Russian, whatever he was saying. So the, the, the guard at the gate was saying, who are you? Grandfather, the only who he knew was German, wo, which means where. So he thought the man was asking him, where are you from? And so he answered, Abram from Tobolsk. Uh, you know, but in his Yiddishkeit way, the guard didn't hear him. The entry guard didn't hear him. And so he says, okay, so you're Abram Tobolowski. Now, that's the story I've told for years, that I got my name the same way Don Corleone got his name. <laughs> Stephen Tobolowski, it's not really my name. It's what this security guard came up with in Galveston, Texas. However, however, here's the new twist for Wikipedia, the people that, that didn't I'm making know. notes here, right here, so I can update Making it notes. This is the new story. And this is the problem with the difference between fact, fiction, and lore. And that is my brother's son, Andrew, had a summer job working, I think, at a law firm in downtown Dallas a few years ago. And he was going through some of the archival footage that they had in the office. And he found a picture, and I think it was from Plano, Texas, somewhere around there, of Tobolowski Brothers Hardware something like a, a store in, in that predated 1888. Interesting. So in other words, part of the Tobolowski family had already arrived and had the name Tobolowski and the story about my grandfather and the gatekeeper is probably fictitious. So the <laughs> Tobolowskis predate grandfather in Texas. Wow, there you have it. That is... Another two exclusives that we've gotten so far. I tell you, we're, we're moving along quite well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's too, that's crazy. Yeah, well, that sets the record straight. Now we know. And if people ask, 
we have the answer. And that's, I like the twist. That's good because there's just, you never know what you read, but the fact that you got the details and updated later, that's very significant. Um, and I love it. It's fantastic. I, I kind of want to talk about a few different things here. Yep. I, I want to talk about this again, speaking of researching and details and IMDB and all the things that actors are a part of when I, when I go out and Google people and, and research and things like that, I, the, the thing that comes up often is this term character actor. And when you Google you, it comes up as well. I don't know, you've probably answered this before, but I'm kind of curious, like, what does that mean exactly? Because to me, I feel like as an actor, no matter what you do, you're playing a different character. Do you feel like when people describe you or label you as that, is that a fair assumption? Because you've done a huge body of work, like things that I wouldn't even consider to be character actor type work because you've ranged from drama to comedy and, and everything in between. I, I think it is a large catch-all phrase. And, okay. I, and I want to point something out. It, well, it's a large catch-all phrase that usually means you don't get the girl. That's usually what it means. <laughs> Fair enough. But you are the fr you you are some sort of side story, side part. You're either something that has to do with the lead of the movie, either his friend, his lawyer, uh, his buddy who gets killed. You you have a smaller but supportive role is usually what it means, and it also means physically you you can stretch the barriers of taste. You can be bald. You can be fat. You can be humped <laughs> over. You, you can have a beard. You can look weird. You, you know, you that also means character actor. But I'm, I want to bring up something that I, I thought of recently. The term character actor really only applies in movies. Right. Uh, if you're in the theater, you know, they don't say Polonius is a character actor. No, he, never. Polonius. You don't say Laertes is a character actor or Mercutio is a character. They're... They're just actors. And when you say television, like on One Day at a Time or Goldberg's or Silicon Valley, nobody ever said Jack Barker, character actor. Stephen Tobolowsky is J Jack Barker, no. played by character actor. You know, they just say Jack Barker. So it's only in movies as a designation that you are a smaller, more insignificant piece of the puzzle. It, it's an interesting industry because it's based on finding something new, and it's also based on finding something familiar at sure. the same time. So they're always looking for the new sensation. What, what, what I feel on the bill is the familiar. And, and it helps in a way in that I lost my hair at an early age, which I thought would be the end of my career. But the re fact that I've had decades of being bald with glasses, it's become kind of a look I have. Yeah, I would say. And, 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 and so people feel, fam oh, well, he's in this. This is, I'm familiar with this guy. This is good. So then you could people throw in a lot of new people around me. In Groundhog Day, I was kind of a newish person in that film. Yeah. You know, a lot of people hadn't seen me, even though I was in Mississippi Burning, and if you, they hadn't seen me in a big comedic role. At, at that particular point in my career, the first few films I did, it was a toss-up as to whether I would be, and this goes to your point, it goes to whether I would be pigeonholed, shallow-graved into, oh, he's a dramatic actor, he plays lawyers, judges, policemen, CIA. I played CIA agents back then. But when I did Groundhog Day, then it became 
oh, he's this comedic actor, the comedic character actor. And then I got lots of comedy roles. And it took, God bless Chris Nolan, with Memento, that once once you do something like Groundhog Day, that is that big of a comedic statement, it's very difficult for the public to buy you in a serious role at all. Sure. You know, the past work kind of undercuts the present work, except Chris Nolan's movie was so weird and so different and so outrageously imaginative. It was easy for me to play Sammy Jenkins, and then at that part, I could do serious roles again. So yes, it is both, uh, you get cast a lot because you are familiar, and it is The Shallow Grave. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I, I appreciate that answer, and I've been wanting to ask that question before, and the opportunity has now presented itself. I, I was just curious about that, because you have done so many different things. We've we've mentioned just a handful of your long body of work and that sort of thing. It's just fascinating to me. So I appreciate the answer on that and that sort of thing. You often talk about the idea of storytelling and being a storyteller when you come into these roles. Is that pretty much how you go about anything that you do and how you get into your characters when you're cast in something particular, whether it's dramatic, if you could just expound on that a little bit. I think it's important to, to read the script. I had an acting teacher, Ed K. Martin. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, I loved Ed K. And he said the most important thing an actor could do is the first read-through of a script, is to sit down with the script with no interruption, no telephones, no TV, no radio, sit in the quiet and read the script. And the way you react to the script is the way the audience is going to react to the script. And it's the only time you're going to be able to read the script and have that input that they, to get that hit. Because afterwards, you're working on the part, now it's all old news. So when I read a script, I try to see what story is being told. And nine out of 10 times, the story that's being told is the hero's journey. That's the story that people usually grab onto. The reason why people like the hero's journey is you could kind of stop it wherever you want to make sure that the hero is still the hero. You know, and happily ever after is a big phrase in the hero's journey because we know happily after ever, ever after doesn't really exist. You know, there's always the next day. I read the script and I try to see what aspect of the story I am providing. Am I what am I supporting? What element of the story am I supporting? Am I, am I someone who moves the hero forward? Am I someone who is an adversary to the hero? What am I doing? You, you take a look at Mississippi Burning. There's a very complex script. You, you have, and, and I read the script, and it is a story about the war to control history. It is beyond one man's story or any man's story. I, I, so I read that script and I said, that's what this is. This is the battle for who is at the microphone to control history. And I went in to meet Alan Parker on that movie and he said, well, how would you play Clayton Townley? And I said, Abraham Lincoln. And he said, what? And I said, I'm playing it like Abraham Lincoln. I'm not a bad guy. I am speaking as an advocate for my position as a white nationalist. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, as you know, for Touché. whatever, I am speaking as an advocate 
for my position. We live in a time, Alan, where we have political advocates representing every position, and I equally am representing my position, and I will represent it honestly, truthfully, not as a villain, not as I'm going to be Abraham Lincoln. And he kind of went, huh. And uh, and he enjoyed that aspect. I remember when I met Ridley Scott on Thelma and Louise. I read the script, and I see what that story is. The, the story, and, and it's, it is a kind of black twist on Hero's Journey, because of course the, in, you know, the ending is that there is nowhere for these ladies to go. Right. That, you know, I was, I was in exercise class the other day, and I was doing, we, we do it virtually, and I was doing calf raises. And I started feeling a pain in my right foot, and I realized, oh, that's where when I was seven years old, I severed my tendon jump, jumping into our neighbor's swimming pool and they had coffee cans in the water and the can sliced right through the bottom oh, of my wow. foot. Oh, God, yes. And it left blood on the sidewalk for a year. And the next year, I cut my foot on a piece of glass and you could still see the dried blood on the sidewalk from the year before when I cut my foot. So anyway, that's a gross story to say. That it was when I was doing the calf raises, I felt the old pain. And I go, oh, I get it. The injury doesn't go away. It gets covered with experience. It gets covered with uh, desire. It gets covered with new goals and new dreams and vistas, but the old pain does not go away. And if we knew how much pain we inflict on other people, we would be much more careful knowing how long it takes for that pain to heal. So in Thelma and Louise, those two ladies both had pain that could not heal. And their journey was a journey to escape pain, which is a form of the hero's journey, even though it doesn't turn out well for them. So I go into Ridley Scott, and he said, who are you in this movie, Stephen? And I said, I'm The Undertaker. I said, I'm not, I have no stock in this at all, but I will pursue these ladies and I bury them. That's what I'm doing. And he goes, I like that. Yeah, you know, but but that was from an analysis of the entire script. That That's from like, oh, that's where I fit into this puzzle, as opposed to getting into the nuts and bolts of being an FBI agent or whatever. We, there is the, the story I've told before from that about playing the FBI agent. And re, we were about to do my first scene, the entrance in, into, the, into uh, Thelma's house after she's left. And Ridley says, so Stephen, what are you going to do in this scene? Well, I was shocked because I thought directors tell actors what to do, but not Ridley Scott. He asks you what you're going to do. I, I guess I'm going to take over the room. I, I didn't even know what that meant. He goes, all right, all right, we'll, <laughs> sure. we'll, give, we'll give it a try. So we rehearsed. And the only thing I could think to do were things I saw on TV on Law & Order. You know, I had no idea what takeover. You know, so I said... John, you know, get over there and wiretap that phone over there. And you, you get over there and get on the headquarters and put an IT line in. So, you know, on all this shouting out stupid technical orders around here. And then I go outside the front door and I'm like, God, Stephen, that sucked. That was really bad acting. You know, that was just terrible and cliche. And, and I hear from inside the room the AD going, everybody ready? Camera's ready? And then the little voice in my head says, Stephen, you better think of something fast because this is terrible. This is terrible. What do you do when you really 
are running a meeting, when you really take over something, what is most important to you? Cameras ready and rolling. I'm hearing outside and I go, uh, snacks, snacks, snacks is what's most important. I go in and I organize snacks and they go action. So I come in the door and instead of doing what I did before, I go, okay, guys, I'm going to go on a deli run <laughs> soon. And uh, Johnson, what do you want? The turkey with the Swiss cheese as usual? And and the guy who's playing Johnson said, uh, sure. And I said, and you want on rye? Oh, yeah, yeah, rye. All right, I'm going to have a cappuccino and I'm going to have my lox and bagel. And yet, so I go around to each of the agents asking what they want and I start taking down their food orders. And I said, okay, uh, I'll be back and you know I'll be back in in forty minutes you know and I left and Ridley goes like cut print wow he goes that's and from then on in every scene in Thelma Louise Ridley would look at me and go like so what are you eating in this scene <laughs> and what are you eating in this scene and so we made a running thing through Thelma and Louise that in each scene I'm eating something yes so so that just all came from the shot in the dark of knowing truth, truthfully what your part of the story is. I mean, that is just incredible. Now I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that. <laughs> well, knowing, sure. After my son is asleep, of course, but and just kind of reliving some of those moments and the idea of how you approach acting, it sort of peels back the layer a little bit as just an external watcher of entertainment because for me, I hear acting is, you know, pretend circumstances or emotions under real circumstances, however you want to phrase it, but looking at it as a storyteller and really coming at it from an honest perspective, I think is what makes film and television magical, right? And makes us go, I want more of this and want to be entertained, I think. If, if, if I could put my philosophy in a nutshell, acting has nothing to do with emotions. Acting is about clarity of thought. If you know what you're thinking, your emotions will follow. Your emotion, you, you will emotionally be engaged 100%. If you go for the emotion, it's like painting the side of a barn gray. You're going to get gray. But what happens is in real life, our emotions change every millisecond. And, and that's because our thoughts change and, and our attitude toward what we're seeing and doing change. So you got to let go of the emotional thing and understand with clarity what you're thinking, and then the emotions will follow. Acting 101 Masterclass. <laughs> I love it. That's There you go. Uh, let's sign everybody up. Going back, if I have read correctly, sort of winding the time back, You were we mentioned this a little bit. You were born and lived in Dallas, and then you made your way to Illinois for school, and you were always a creative type doing different things. At what point did you decide that you wanted to make the decision to go in, to Hollywood and to become an actor? Like what sort of was the, the path that made you make that critical decision in your life to, to give it all up, hop in your car and make the drive down and become an actor? Oh, when I was five. When I was five, I decided I wanted to be an actor in Hollywood because I thought monsters were real. And if I went to Hollywood, I could hang out with Godzilla and Frankenstein and Dracula and the nice. wolf man. And it would be so cool because they would be real and they would be my buddies. But of course, you get older and then you get different perspectives and different problems crop up. As, as I got older, I thought, well, I wanted to be an actor because acting was noble. 
And I wanted a noble profession. I wanted, oh man, noble profession. What a fool. That, you know, Chekhov, Ibsen, Shakespeare, you know, Shaw, you know, acting, being able to do those plays, that was noble. Doing television or film, that was nyeh. You know, nobody does TV or film, but, you know, I wanted to be a theater actor. And then when I was in graduate school with my girlfriend, Beth, we wanted so much to be actors. And the, the only decision was to go to New York or Los Angeles. New York was all where all the serious actors went because that's where Broadway was. But Los Angeles was cheaper. And so I thought it was a cheaper place to be poor. It was better to be poor there. <laughs> And it's true, you know, I came out to Los Angeles, I got a job in children's theater right away. And I was able to rent an apartment for like $200. In West Uh, Hollywood by the bookstore, right? (laughs) You got it, West Hollywood. In West Hollywood, right across from a Golden Legend bookstore. You got it. How did you know? And, And, but eventually, you know, Beth stayed in Illinois to work on a play, The Lincoln Show. And when she came out, I rented a house for 400 and I think $415 a month in wow. New York. You can't get a closet for 450 And I had two bedrooms, a bathroom, a front yard, backyard, and a swing on the front porch. Uh, I had flowers in the garden. So it was a much better place to be poor. Yeah. Well, and West Hollywood, I think, is typically where most people live because it's the cheapest to live in the LA County area. And I think I just hear stories of all these actors piling in together and five or six <laughs> people who are just superstars now <laughs> living on couches and things. And I just think to myself, how weird is that, that they would do that? But I guess when you're pursuing this goal and obviously you had been trained and had lots of experience, your story, you came out and got a job right away, not the typical, you know, waiting tables or now I guess it would be driving for Uber, Lyft, DoorDash. That's the new waiting tables, uh, some people say. And then you were there. You were living the dream, right? That was probably success for you to be able to at least get to that point, right? Well, no, it was hell. Uh, doing children's here <laughs> was hell. Uh, I wore I've a heard leotard. So many people say that. <laughs> That's I wore a leotard every day, and I could not get the stink out after after you know two <laughs> weeks. And I didn't I didn't really have all the money to buy new leotards every two weeks. I huh. kept washing the damn things, but you couldn't get the stink out of them. Uh, I had an unusual set of skills in in that I could play the piano and the guitar, right. which really helped for children's theater. And then you have to be good at puppets. So so that helped me rather than getting a temporary job filing. And and it paid fine and it was an equity job. So, you know, it it was what you would call kind of professional, but the jump from that to be able to do real auditions. Okay. For real TV shows or something was miles, miles, miles away. It, you know, it still was, you know, beyond my ability to imagine how I would make that leap. And, and it turned out to be the theater that was my savior. Uh, my girlfriend, Beth, ended up winning the Pulitzer Prize, of all things. And so her first play, Crimes of the Heart, was on Broadway. Her second play, Miss Firecracker, was wanting to go to Broadway. And so 
I did Miss Firecracker, the premiere out here in Los Angeles, a little black box theater. And then Beth sent me off to Buffalo, New York to, to be in the the company there to do Miss Firecracker Lord Theater. But I was making, you know, like $300 a week, you know, better than children's theater. It was a real play. But it was at that, doing that production that the woman who was playing the lead, Catherine Grody, uh, Mandy Potemkin's wife, she was playing Carnell in that that production. Her agents came from Manhattan to see her. And they saw me and— Catherine said, oh, my agents want you to call them. So I called them up, and uh, Jeff Hunter was the name of the—and I didn't know. He was one of the big agents in New York. And so I called Jeff Hunter. He says, do you have an agent? And I go, well, not really. He says, well, you do now. On on your day off, I want you to come to Manhattan. We're going to set you up with some auditions. And so that boosted me from being the guy doing hand puppets and working in my girlfriend's plays— to being somebody who now was going to be in the Jeff Hunter agency that became DHKPR agency, that became Triad agency, and William Morris, that I started getting real television and movie auditions. But all because I did what I loved the most, doing theater. And I was so depressed that I was doing theater in Buffalo. I was just going to die. But it, it was my salvation, theater. And that's where things broke for you, essentially, getting the auditions and moving forward. Yep. On a side note, we've talked about a lot of projects that you've done. This is just a curiosity question. Do you get a lot of fans yelling out to you, watch your step when you're out in uh, <laughs> somebody? <wanted> this, to- <laughs> this is the best part of the damn pandemic because I wear the mask. I can go to the grocery store and people don't come up to me and go, bing. Does anyone ever say that to you? And I go, yes, they do. I'm sure but okay, all the time. All the time, bing. But with the mask, they don't really know it's me. So uh, that's, even though it is a lovely compliment, it, you know, it's it, wonderful it's old, to I'm be. Sure. <laughs> yes. It's, it's you, you know, you feel like you can't have a bad mood or a bad day. If somebody comes up to you, you have to be in a good mood. So it keeps you on your toes. Right. Well, that's the only groundhog question I have. So I promise you there's far more interesting things, although that is a great film. Other things we can talk about as we wrap up here. You've had a huge career and you've just done so many different things. Stephen, would there be anything that you would do differently? It's an, kind of an existential question or a piece of advice that you wish somebody would have given you that you would have taken or should have taken or would maybe give to somebody else? The one piece of advice, and I know it's the hardest to take, is that don't be so afraid and don't be so down on yourself. If I were to look back at my career, my first TV job, comedy job, sitcom job I ever got was on the show Alice, where I played caveman Carl, a rock and roll DJ in the same cloth as Wolfman Jack. And I got that because Mindy Marin, the casting director, called me at home and said, Stephen, we've lost our caveman Carl. We shoot today. Can you come in and do wow. caveman Carl? And I said, well, 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 sure. Now, this is before the age of computers, so I didn't have a script or anything. Mindy said, come on by, get the script, read through read through your scene with Beth Howland, and the producer and director will be there. And if you get the thumbs up, you're going to go right into hair, makeup, costume, and you're going to shoot later this afternoon in front of a live audience. You okay with that? And I go, yeah. So one, to everybody, always say yes. 
say yes even to doing children's theater, say yes to doing theater in Buffalo, New York, say yes to anything because no's become uh, addictive. You end up saying no to everything. So say yes, even though it's not exactly what you want to do. But this was the new wrinkle I had just this year before the pandemic. I realized that Mindy Marin didn't call me in to read Caveman Carl when she was originally casting the part. I wasn't called in to audition for the part. I had read for Mindy maybe five or six times in the year or two before and never even got a call back. Wow. You know, it was always one audition and out, one audition, not even add a boy, way to, way to go, Stephen, good time, maybe next time. Nothing, nothing. So every one of those times, every one of those times, I felt like I was a failure. And it hurt my heart and it hurt my soul. And I kicked myself and I said, I'm never going to make it in this business. I can't get anywhere. But it was on the strength of those failures that Mindy Marin called me in when her back was against the wall and they needed a caveman Carl that day. If I had known that, that my failures were not failures, that my failures were actually moving the bar forward for me, I would not have been so afraid. I would not have been so depressed. And I would have been able to have a much happier, younger life. Such a long and iconic career, Stephen. You've just done so much. And I I would be remiss if we didn't mention this as we wrap up. You have a podcast, which is fantastic. If you could let our listeners in on that and what they can expect when they have the opportunity to listen, which they should. Yeah, it's the Tobolowsky Files. And just the thumbnail version of what this was, was in... 2008, I'd broken my neck riding a horse on the side of an active volcano in Iceland. Wow. Yeah, wow. And so you come back. I, <laughs> The doctor in America said I was misdiagnosed in Iceland and I had a fatal injury, which, of course, I didn't. As a writer, I know fatal has a meaning and fatal means you're dead. So it, yes. that was not true. But I got his point that it was a, a very, very serious injury. I couldn't really do much of anything. So I thought, what if to pass the time, because for three months you have to remain still. You even have to sleep vertically. Did you yes. know this? You have a broken neck. You have to sleep vertically. Happened to my landlord. I know exactly. Oh, God. Oh, what torture. So I thought, well, what if what the doctor told me was true and it was a fatal injury and I died on that mountain in Iceland? What would I want my two boys to know about their dad? So I started writing little stories about my early life, my mom and dad, the first girl I fell in love with in second grade because she played the piano, uh, meeting Beth in college, little, little, little stories. When a student at Harvard, David Chen, called me up and he had heard of my storytelling. And he said, Stephen, I'm thinking of doing a movie podcast. You've been in so many movies. Why don't you do movie stories and we'll call it something like The Tobolowsky Files? So I go, sure, David, sure. I, I'm doing nothing. So I start writing movie stories. I think podcast number one was about Great Balls of Fire. You, you, you got it. You know, you've heard that before. The fourth, we were ready for the fourth week and my mother suffered a heart attack. So I go back to Dallas and she did not recover. And so the fourth podcast I wrote was of the last 24 hours of my mother's life. Wow. And I call that The Alchemist. And I wrote that. And I called David and I said, this next podcast has nothing to do with movies. He said, well, let's try it, man. Let's see how it goes. That podcast, The Alchemist, went all over the world. It ended up on NPR, NPR stations all over the country. 
So David said, from now on, we're not doing a movie podcast. From now on, you write true stories about your life. It could be movies. It could be girlfriends. It could be sickness, whatever. And so now we have 99 episodes of, of this life of mine. And what one reviewer called it was the serialized man, in that the stories are not in chronological order, but they're all true. So as the listener, you can listen and their stories of when I broke up with Beth way before when I fell in love with Beth. And their stories about my wife, Anne, when we weren't even friends, you know, and the listener puts the pieces together over the years. So we now have 99 episodes. It's totally free at TobolowskiFiles.com because David and I decided we wanted no commercial interruption. Microsoft offered to pay us $1,000 a commercial, to have two commercials in each episode. At that point, we didn't know we were going to have 99 episodes. But we said no. So there's no money changing hands, totally free, Tobolowski files. Most of the stories are very, very funny. Some of them are informative. Some of them are not funny at all. And it is true stories from my life, crazy stories, me dating a stripper, me being held hostage at gunpoint, uh, my first job, $10 a week, stories, the birth of my children, uh, ESP experiment. I had uh, me writing with David Byrne, uh, true stories, all sorts of amazing stories you just can't believe. And we will put links to that along with everything else that we talked about in our show notes. This has been amazing, Stephen. Thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Brett. And don't don't get rained in on there. <laughs> you know, that rain is coming down here, I hear. Yes. That brings today's show to a close. Goodly do. Thanks for stopping by. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a friend and subscribe. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Autobots, roll out. Go home.